Hello and welcome back to Nature's Wonders. I'm your host Will and today we are joined with Eric from Live Aquaria. Thank you for joining us today and make sure to stay tuned till the end. This podcast is sponsored by Corals Anonymous and Aquachar. Before we get started, can you give me a little background about who you are and how you got in the business of Live Aquaria? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Eric Ratty, and I started out like everybody else as just a hobbyist and enthusiast. I grew up in the Milwaukee metro area and worked at a retail, sco- a retail store called Aquatic Emporium slash The Fish Store. It went by either one. Uh, and that was in uh, the late 80s when I was in my late teens, and I was also attending art school at the time. So it was kind of a part-time hobby and job and uh, I loved it. And I just, I held on to it through the years, even when, when I was out in the corporate world, because it gave me something fun to do on the weekends and engage with people and, you know, talk to them about fish, teach them about fish. And uh, more importantly, I was able to hold on to that discount and get my fish and supplies at cost. So um, yeah, I've been in and kind of out of this hobby for 30 years and then i came to live aquaria four years ago so what i do here is uh we, we kind of wear a lot of hats at live aquaria you know we're a small wisconsin-based company i'd say the rhinelander facility that i work out of there's probably a total of 60 employees here and that's with office staff people out in the coral farm um, i think what a lot of people don't realize about live aquaria is we have a trained customer service center. So we have agents over there. Most of them have experience or who have been trained. So, you know, you call in during business hours, uh, you'll get somebody on the phone. And we also have live chat that you can access on the website. Well, that's good. Um, So you talked a little bit about your coral farming. Can you tell me a little bit about your whole facility and what that looks like? I mean, after looking at your website, you can see you have saltwater, freshwater, you even have sharks. So how do you guys manage all that? And like, what's your system look like? Yeah, you know, we, we're we kind of, um, we have, I guess you would call, originally when Doctors Fosters and Smith owned us, we were part of the campus. And now we are, uh, we're just the one facility because the warehouse is, is next door. That's sitting vacant. We may or may not have some plans for that, but, um, you know, we, like I said, we've got about 30 people that work out in the coral farm and they do anything from husbandry to fulfillment. And, uh, they're, they're all trained professionals and they're, they're experts in their areas. So that's nice because when the fish come in, we have one gentleman that typically handles all the acclimation of the fish. So everybody's an expert in their area. And because they're in this same area every day, they notice any differences or changes with fish. Um, you know, and first and foremost, the handling of our animals in the aquatic life, you know, we've implemented some standards and procedures when acclimating and conditioning aquatic life. Um, 
we offer both aquatic life and aquarium supplies along with a huge selection of frozen food. And we also have our diver's den section, which I feel is probably the best WYSIWYG store out there just due to our photos and even the way we handle the fish. You know, meaning we never handle the fish or pull them out of the water for a picture with our hands or a net. Um, we don't use nets because typically they can transfer bacteria or pathogens and then any fish like angels or clowns with cheek spines and, you know, plecos and cats with dorsal spines, they'll get hung up in the net. So we use these clear containers. So we put the container into the aquarium or, you know, wherever they are and scoop them out. So they're always in the water. They're never exposed to oxygen. They're not handled. They're not pulled out of the water by hand and stressed out for a picture. And then we, we have a specific tank that we use for photography. So, you know, our, our people here, again, you know, we train them well and they're very respectful of the aquatic life. And obviously the, the health and, and condition of these animals is our number one priority. Sorry, I think I may have went on a tangent there from where <laughs> we started right. with this question. That's all right. Um, so going with the taking pictures, how do you guys make it so that the fish aren't like stressed? Do you have just, do you keep them in your photo tank for a long period of time before you take the picture well, or are they know, just happy in general? <laughs> I'd love to say they're just happy in general. Well, you know, typically nothing gets photographed for the divers and WYSIWYG store until it's been here for a period of time or it's been acclimated, conditioned, quarantined. Um, the other thing is too, a fish is not ready to be sold until even if it looks good, we want to make sure that fish is eating, you know? Um, so we, we have this, we have this aquarium and, you know, by the time we photograph them, I guess, you know, the fish are conditioned and used to being an aquarium. So, you know, not completely stressed out. You know, that's not to say there aren't some species that don't try to jump out. I mean, you know, there are certain species of fish that are just a little more fidgety than others. But typically, we have the photographer sit in front of the aquarium. And then we have, I guess, for lack of a better word, a fish handler, you know, people that go and get the fish, drop them in, photograph them, pull them out. So yeah, sometimes it might take a few minutes for the fish to settle down. Um, but again, you know, after they've been here, whether it's been a couple of weeks or expert only fish, you know, we keep those in house for a minimum of 30 days just because, you know, they're more challenging, like orange spotted file fish, you know, those are obligate corallivores in the wild. So we convert them over to a diet of mysis and brine shrimp. Now, that's not to say I would put them in a reef tank. They might still go after polyps, but, you know, some have had success with it. And I think as long as you keep those fish fed, some may or may not be reef safe mm -hmm. so i did have a question about the feeding i know uh some fish say like mandarins or some fish just like to eat live food do you guys condition most of your fish over to frozen and pellet and flake food yeah yeah we really do and here and there if we get some stubborn ones uh we we will we keep some copepods on hand or baby brine shrimp just to elicit a feeding response but typically especially with mandarins now you know so many of them are captive bred and they'll come from ORA or biota or wherever. And most of those are pellet fed. Um, and speaking of mandarins, I know a lot of people, they, they say, why are these captive bred mandarins so small? Well, if you think about how long it takes to raise a fish from egg to free swimming to fry, I mean, 
they've got a lot of time invested in that fish and they can't continue to invest more time in that fish to get it up to say an inch or inch and a half. I mean, that would take them probably well over a year. So it just wouldn't be financially feasible for them to hang on to that fish that long. You know, they wouldn't be able to get out of it what they put into it. So that's why sometimes these captive bred mandarins are so small. However, again, you know, they're, they're raised on pellet food and maybe brine shrimp or brine shrimp or maybe super small mice shrimp. And I know now, I'm not sure if we offer it, but I think you can get packaged copepods. They're not alive, but, you know, they still have all the nutrition and everything else. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tricks that you do to make your fish eat the food that you want them to eat? You know, it's just at first you just have to offer a variety. Um a couple of years back, we, we were fortunate enough, um, thanks to our, our former director, Kevin Cohen, and his awesome connections, we got ourselves the holy grail of all fish, a peppermint angel. And we brought that guy in and uh, we gave him a subdued tank. But really what we did, we offered him just tons of food. Uh, at Rod's Food, they make uh, tentacle teasers and they're different types of fish eggs. So we, we kind of made up these slurries of fish eggs and baby brine shrimp. And it's just offering, you know, I guess you're kind of throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks and hopefully something's going to trigger their appetite, you know, but again, you have to make the fish comfortable enough to eat. And that's what a lot of people don't realize, you know, fish in a new setting, all of a sudden they're in these bright lights and, you know, give them a couple of days to settle in, turn off the lights or subdue the lights. And that goes for even the the lights in the room, you know, and once, as long as the fish are healthy, sooner or later, when, when they, when they settle in, they're going to get hungry. So that that's key too. you know, obviously offering a variety of foods and then making sure they're comfortable in their setting. And, and if you've got some fish harassing another, you know, it's never going to eat. So sometimes that's where a quarantine tank may come in handy too, not only to QT your fish, but just to let it acclimate by itself to aquarium life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue to the next uh, question that I had about quarantining your fish. I know that you get a lot from wholesale and imports, but um, how do you quarantine your fish to minimize the disease and loss? No, that's a great question. So um, again, uh, one of my coworkers, John King, he he heads up the QT area. So with all the saltwater fish, he, he sees every one of them that come in. So when we get an order in, the first thing we do is we kill all the lights. And because we're, you know, we're, we don't have a light on every tank. We just have overhead lights because it just wouldn't be feasible to be moving these lights on and off back and forth and we don't want them to fall in the water. So we have overhead lights, but we, we kill those and we have red lights. So we turn on like the photo studio. So the fish feels it's in darkness. So again, that's key right there, you know, right out of, because you have to remember, and this is true for anybody who orders fish online, these fish have been in a completely dark box for 18 to 24 hours. So then if you've got lights on and you pull this thing out, it's going to freak out. This is why I'm not a fan of the, the fish unboxing. <laughs> so at any rate, that's step one. Uh, a lot of our marine fish are shipped in low salinity. So we match that as well. So typically in our QT system, we keep our salinity at 1.018, you know, right around there. And this, this does a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, you know, lower salinity makes it harder for bacteria, or I'm sorry, protozoans and parasites 
to survive. And the other thing that low salinity does that a lot of people don't realize is when fish are shipped, you know, they're stressed out. And think when, when you're, as a person stressed out, you kind of feel a knot in your gut, you know, and your organs are under stress. So what a low salinity does, it helps fish osmoregulate better. And obviously that's very important to them because they have to keep their water and electrolyte balance, you know, in check. So again, uh, the low salinity helps with their osmoregulation. Um, and in our QT system, we do run a therapeutic amount of copper, uh, 0.015. Um, you know, because some fish, there's certain angelfish, there's certain wrasses that are sensitive to copper. So we might only leave them in there a day or two. And like macropharyngodon species, once we condition them or acclimate them, get them used to the water, we'll move them out within a day or two into an actual aquarium with a sand bed because that's pretty critical for those guys. I know sometimes I get some flack when I do my Instagram posts and they're like, you know, why isn't that, why isn't that leopard grass and sand? And, and basically that's why, because it, also sand just isn't ideal in a QT system because it may absorb copper and just, it just gets tricky. But rest assured, we do get those particular fish out and then they actually get their own aquarium with a soft sand bed that's usually two inches or so. So then they can burrow and sometimes they don't come out for two or three days. And the other thing you have to remember too is some of these fish, they're coming from the other side of the world. They might not have acclimated. I mean, their internal clock could be off yet. So a lot of wrasses like that will actually burrow and hide and you might not see them for a couple of weeks before they come out and feel comfortable. So then aside from that, you know, we, we treat these fish as needed. You know, we don't just dump a ton of medication in there. We're not big fans of that. Like I said, we'll use copper. Um, our QT system, our main system, our diver's den system, all these systems are enclosed. So the fish that are in the QT system, they don't go anywhere near the main fish system. So basically how it works is after they've been QT'd, they go into the main system. After they're in the main system, they get photographed, they go in the diver's den systems. Each of these systems has, uh, we utilize UV sterilization. We've got some monster protein skimmers and we skim with ozone to help denature any pathogens. And all of this information too, if you're interested, is on our website. So if you go to the Live Aquarius site and then you click on the diver's den section, you will find there's information about the Coral Farm and Aquatic Life Facility. And then, you know, corals and inverts have their each own separate system. Um, the corals and inverts, they come in, we kind of acclimate them the same way. They actually put them in tubs that drip water over. So we acclimate them to our water and then we give them a, a, a good once over for any sort of hitchhikers or parasites, um, anything like that, that, you know, we might deem that, you know, the, the coral or whatever may need treatment. So it will, we'll medicate corals, um, any sort of, uh, the carpet anemones and ritter anemones. We always QT those. We, uh, hit them with Cipro, which is a broad spectrum antibiotic typically for five days. And, uh, if they've, you know, they're pretty responsive to that because for whatever reason, they don't, they don't ship well. And then they get these bacterial infections. So we, we treat all of them regardless. Um, and again, that's for the ritterize and the carpets. So we've got quite a few procedures and protocols we employ. 
And uh, again, if you want to know more about this and uh, a little more in depth, we have uh, plenty of information on the site in that Divers Den section. Some of it, there's even some videos. Yeah, I'll be sure to link your website and all the information. Um, so after the quarantine system, how are you separating all your fish, coral, and inverts? Do you sure. have species-specific or is it, I don't know, uh, like how do you guys separate everything and make sure everything's happy with what it's worth? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you've we, we've got some bigger tanks. So again, they, the process they go through is after acclimation, conditioning, and quarantine, they'll go into the main system and then they're brought back up to normal salinity, 1.025, and they're still kept in copper and I don't remember the level, but I think it's, it's, it gets higher or no, I'm sorry. I know they're still in copper. I would have to check with the operations manager. Um, so they're in copper the whole time they're here again, unless they're the sensitive species. So they go from one system to another, they get acclimated up to 1.025. And then after we photograph them, they're held in the diver's den system. And depending on the fish, if they're tiny fish that are jumpers, you know, like little blennies or gobies, we might keep them just in a little fish box. If they're communal, you know, we can mix some together in our four foot long tanks. And uh, again, we have the same people in these same areas every day, keeping an eye on these fish. So if something goes south or if they, you know, if there's some aggression going on, they'll see that separate fish and, uh, you know, try to keep them as happy as we can. And we feed whether the fish is in QT, main, or diver's den, we feed very, very heavy. And then what we do at the end of the day, we, the staff goes through and we siphon off every tank and we pull out any, you know, excess pellets, brine shrimp, mices, so that way it just doesn't overload the system. So we, we keep them in, in pretty good company while they're here and we try and keep them as fat and as happy as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... When you guys are receiving your fish, where do you usually receive your fish from? Are you getting it from wild or captive bred? And are there any specific places in the world that are the predominant fish shipper? No, that's a great question. Um, so our fish, we, we get from wholesalers. And, you know, there, there's Dynasty Marine and they collect stuff out of the Caribbean. Um, we use quality marine and, and they have, you know, people that have collection stations around the world. We do get several captive bread, bread fish. You know, we're, we're always trying to sell and, and bring in any fish from ORA, um, Biota or Bali Aqua Rich, uh, because it's just great. Anytime we can alleviate or take pressure off the ocean, that's huge. And, you know, when, when Kevin started the company, our previous director, Kevin, he's very passionate about, you know, responsibly harvested fish and, you know, sustainable practices and methods, which, which leads me to, there's a company over in Indonesia called RVS Fish World. And we don't get from them directly, but they supply to the wholesalers. And the owner and operator, his name is Barnett Shutman. He actually has a ras named after him, the mag magma ras, which is uh, Cyril Labor Shutman. I uh, he has this company over there, and what he does is he not only employs the locals, 
but he trains them and teaches them about their natural resources. And he trains them to responsibly harvest fish using nets and not cyanide, you know, because back in the day, anything that came out of the Philippines was so suspect, you know, you just, you just didn't know. You, you didn't know. So I, you know, we, we definitely try to support companies like RBS Fish World and all the captive bred companies, you know, just in the last 10 to 15 years, if you look at the spectrum and the amount of fish and species that these companies have been able to produce, it's astounding. It's amazing how far this hobby has come. And what's great about some of these companies, especially like Bali Aqua Rich, they also breed fish for the food industry. So they're, they're doing what they can to alleviate the pressures on the oceans and the reefs, which, you know, I, I think if, if you're a hobbyist with a conscience, that, that's huge and that, that should be a big concern. Mm-hmm. Have you guys noticed any differences in the wild caught and captive bred species? Yeah, I mean, uh, first and foremost, I mean, obviously captive bred f- fish are, are used to being in an aquarium and they're going to take to prepared foods a lot faster than a wild caught fish would. So, but again, you know, with the wild caught fish, we do get, you know, we, we, we do so much to get them feeding and acclimated and, um, you know, make sure they're healthy, but obviously captive bread is ideal and it's, it's the way to go. And I, I hope to see more and more of it in the future. And again, you know, these, just the companies I've mentioned, they've had tremendous success and just the, the, the variety of species they can breed now to me is just astounding. It's, it's really, really incredible because I've been in this hobby since the late eighties. And I think the only thing that was being captive bred back then was probably, you know, Banghai Cardinals, which, which have similar breeding habits to African cichlids. So they're actually pretty easy. You make them happy and they'll brew the, the, the fry in their mouth and you go from there. And that mm-hmm. was back in the day when we had uh, crushed dolomite for substrate and a, and a protein skimmer back then consisted of an air pump with a limewood air stone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're going back a ways but it, it was a blast i love it and mm-hmm. uh yeah to answer your question i yeah anytime you can buy a captive bred fish yeah you're gonna pay a little bit more for it but it's it's a fish you're gonna feel much better about in the long run you know it's a it's a it's a it's a good purchase mm-hmm. have you noticed any lifespan differences between the two or like tank mate compatibility you know, I, I can't say I have. And and the thing is, too, we're still learning about so many of these fish because some of these fish come in and we don't even know how old they are. And, and, you know, some of these fish can live for decades in the aquarium. I was just on reef to reef the other day and I saw somebody had a, they'd kept a coal tang. I think it was a coal tang for 25 years and it had just passed away. And who knows how old that fish was when they got it. Uh, so... Do you think that the breeding impacts your like the ocean and the ecosystems there? Yeah, and I, I, I think anytime you can alleviate pressure from the reefs, it's a good thing, you know. And I think I think we've got a ways to go with captive breeding. You know, I, I would like to hope that within ten years, fifty to seventy five percent of what we sell is captive bred. 
You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're getting to a point where we've got the technology, we've got these facilities. Um, you know, I know a lot of people are upset about the ban in Hawaii. Yeah, I, I guess I think it's kind of a good thing. I, I think it forces us to get better at what we do, forces us to be better hobbyists and forces the breeders to become better breeders. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I've noticed on your website is your sharks. How how do you guys keep your sharks? And then if someone buys a shark from you, what are they getting in the mail? <laughs> well, you know, most of the sharks we sell are, are the smaller ornamental sharks. They'll be cat sharks, bamboo sharks. Um, once in a while, we'll get some really nice uh, epaulette sharks or some captive bred sharks from ORA. So typically, we usually don't sell sharks that grow more than three feet just because we, we kind of feel like it falls under that tank buster rule where, you know, is it is it responsible to be selling fish that are going to get that huge? And, um, you know, there's, I think there's few people that really, um, are able to provide a home uh, for a larger shark. So that's why we stick with the smaller ones. And, um, you know, typically, you know, all of our stuff, we, we send it out FedEx priority overnight and it comes in insulated boxes. So it's like a styrofoam cooler that fits inside of a very, durable and rugged cardboard box. And depending on the time of the year, we have different types of media we put in there. So in the summer months, um, depending on how big the box is and where it's going, we'll put small ice packs in there. Um, Sometimes, you know, in the fall or, you know, late spring, the temperature is perfect and we might not need packs. And then in the winter, obviously we're putting 48 hour heat packs in. So every day, basically when we print the orders out, we have to forecast and think, okay, this fish is going here. How many packs of ice does, or, you know, does it need heat? Does it need ice? And, and sometimes people out in California might order fish and say, you know, Hey, I got this um, fish. I, I got this order and has a heat pack in it, but it's 70 degrees here. Why is that in there? That a lot of people don't realize is that FedEx's hub is in Memphis, Tennessee. And if you're ordering a fish from us in a cooler month in Wisconsin, but not so cool out in California, we still might have to put a heat pack in it. And then it has to go down to Memphis where it may also be cold. And then by the time it gets out to California, maybe the heat's starting to dissipate. So that's why sometimes if, if, you, if you get some fish and you're like, why does this have ice packs or heat packs in it? You have to remember, it's not just going from our door direct to you. It's also going through the hub in Memphis, Tennessee. So sometimes that makes it a little tricky, you know, um, mm-hmm. and most of the time we get it right, but, but sometimes there's errors and sometimes uh, weather's unpredictable. And sometimes, unfortunately, FedEx has delays and um, sometimes fish get hung up. Mm-hmm. You know, typically if the temperature is okay, they'll be fine because we pack them in pure oxygen. And really, as long as the temperature is you know, within the window, I mean, they can live three to five days in that bag. No problem. It's not ideal. Um, here and there, uh, we get returns back and that is, uh, it might be a package that's been bouncing around for five to seven days. And most of the time the fish are still alive. 
again, it's it's the temperature that's going to be to their detriment if if they're hung up in a you know in a cold warehouse and the heat packs run out. Mm-hmm. So so we you know we've been doing this for twenty years and I, I you know I I think we we're we're some of the best out there as far as shipping just with our experiences but you know we can we can always improve you know and situations arise and we try to prepare for them and and you know mitigate any losses that's awesome yeah well it sounds like you guys do a great job uh shipping but uh yeah so thank you for coming on today it was good talking to you and i learned a lot but Yeah. yeah thank you for coming on today yeah, you're welcome. And if anybody out there has any questions, um, I don't think really what I touched on was my responsibilities. I do do, I handle a lot of the social media. I do some customer interfacing. Um, I do videos. I research products. So I do man uh, Instagram and Facebook. So if you guys, if anybody's got a question, shoot me a message. You know, you can uh, just address it to Eric. Just say, hey, Eric, you know, because we do have our agents do keep an eye on Facebook as well. Um, because sometimes they get customer inquiries Uh, but you know obviously if if you have a customer inquiry your best bet is to call them directly or use live chat and uh, I I thank you for uh, for the opportunity to be on the show here Will of course hopefully we'll see you guys again looking forward to it shoot me an email (laughs) alright thank you bye alright thanks everybody bye bye Thank you so much to Eric for coming on the show today, and thank you guys for listening to the end. Be sure to stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you for listening.